Chapter Twenty Two of My Mark Twain. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. My Mark Twain by William Dean Howells. Chapter Twenty Two. During the summer he spent at York Harbor, I was only forty minutes away at Kittery Point, and we saw each other often. But this was before the last time at Riverdale. He had a wide, low cottage in a pine grove overlooking York River, and we used to sit at a corner of the veranda farthest away from Mrs. Clemens's window, where we could read our manuscripts to each other and tell our stories and laugh our hearts out without disturbing her. At first she had been about the house, and there was one gentle afternoon when she made tea for us in the parlor. But that was the last time I spoke with her. After that it was really a question of how soonest and easiest she could be got back to Riverdale. But, of course, there were specious delays in which she seemed no worse and seemed a little better and Clemens could work at a novel he had begun. He had taken a room in the house of a friend and neighbor, a fisherman and boatman. There was a table where he could write, and a bed where he could lie down and read, and there, unless my memory has played me one of those constructive tricks that people's memories indulge in, he read me the first chapters of an admirable story. The scene was laid in a Missouri town, and the characters such as he had known in boyhood. But as often as I tried to make him own it, he denied having written any such story. It is possible that I dreamed it, but I hope the manuscript will yet be found. Upon reflection, I cannot believe that I dreamed it, and I cannot believe that it was an effect of that sort of pseudo-mnemonics which I have mentioned. The characters in the novel are too clearly outlined in my recollection, together with some critical reservations of my own concerning them. Not only does he seem to have read me those first chapters, but to have talked them over with me, and outlined the whole story. I cannot say whether or not he believed that his wife would recover. He fought the fear of her death to the end, for her life was far more largely his than the lives of most men's wives are theirs. For his own life, I believe, he would never have much cared, if I may trust a saying of one who was so absolutely without pose as he was. He said that he never saw a dead man whom he did not envy for having had it over and being done with it. Life had always amused him, and, in the resurgence of its interests, after his sorrow had ebbed away, he was again deeply interested in the world, and in the human race, which, though damned, abounded in subjects of curious inquiry. When the time came for his wife's removal from York Harbor, I went with him to Boston, where he wished to look up the best means of her conveyance to New York. The inquiry absorbed him. The sort of invalid car he could get, 
how she could be carried to the village station, how the car could be detached from the eastern train at Boston, and carried round to the southern train on the other side of the city, and then how it could be attached to the Hudson River train at New York, and left at Riverdale. There was no particular of the business which he did not scrutinize and master, not only with his poignant concern for her welfare, but with his strong curiosity as to how these unusual things were done with the usual means. With the inertness that grows upon an aging man, he had been used to delegating more and more things, but of that thing I perceived that he would not delegate the least detail. He had meant never to go abroad again, but when it came time to go, he did not look forward to returning. He expected to live in Florence always after that. They were used to the life, and they had been happy there some years earlier, before he went with his wife for the cure of Nauheim. But when he came home again, it was for good and all. It was natural that he should wish to live in New York, where they had already had a pleasant year in Tenth Street. I used to see him there in an upper room, looking south over a quiet open space of backyards, where we fought our battles on behalf of the Filipinos and the Boers, and he carried on his campaign against the missionaries in China. He had not yet formed his habit of lying for whole days in bed, and reading and writing there, yet he was a good deal in bed, from weakness, I suppose, and for the mere comfort of it. My perspectives are not very clear, and in the foreshortening of events which always takes place in our review of the past, I may not always time things aright, but I believe it was not until he had taken his house at 21 Fifth Avenue that he began to talk to me of writing his autobiography. He meant that it should be a perfectly veracious record of his life and period. For the first time in literature, there should be a true history of a man and a true presentation of the men the man had known. As we talked it over, the scheme enlarged itself in our riotous fancy. He said it should be not only a book, it should be a library. Not only a library, but a literature. It should make good the world's loss through Omar's barbarity at Alexandria. There was no image so grotesque, so extravagant, that we did not play with it. And the work, so far as he carried it, was really done on a colossal scale. But one day he said that as to veracity it was a failure. He had begun to lie, and that if no man ever yet told the truth about himself, it was because no man ever could. How far he had carried his autobiography I cannot say. He dictated the matter several hours each day, and the public has already seen long passages from it, and can judge, probably, of the make and matter of the whole form from these. It is immensely inclusive, and it observes no order or sequence. Whether now, after his death, it will be published soon or late, I have no means of knowing. Once or twice he said, in a vague way, that it was not to be published for twenty years, 
so that the discomfort of publicity might be minimized for all the survivors. Suddenly he told me he was not working at it, but I did not understand whether he had finished it, or merely dropped it. I never asked. We lived in the same city, but for old men, rather far apart, he at Tenth Street and I at Seventieth, and with our colds and other disabilities, we did not see each other often. He expected me to come to him, and I would not without some return of my visits. But we never ceased to be friends, and good friends, so far as I know. I joked him once as to how I was going to come out in his autobiography, and he gave me some sort of joking reassurance. There was one incident, however, that brought us very frequently and actively together. He came one Sunday afternoon to have me call with him on Maxime Gorky, who was staying at a hotel a few streets above mine. We were both interested in Gorky, Clemens rather more as a revolutionist, and I as a realist, though I too wished the Russian Tsar ill, and the novelist well in his mission to the Russian sympathizers in this republic. But I had lived through the episode of Kossuth's visit to us, and his vain endeavor to raise funds for the Hungarians' cause in 1851, when we were a younger and nobler nation than now, with hearts, if not hands, opener to the oppressed of Europe, the oppressed of America, the four or five millions of slaves, we did not count. I did not believe Gorky could get the money for the cause of freedom in Russia, which he had come to get. As I told a valued friend of his and mine, I did not believe he could get twenty-five hundred dollars, and I think now I set the figure too high. I had already refused to sign the sort of general appeal his friends were making to our principles and pockets, because I felt it so wholly idle. And when the paper was produced in Gorky's presence, and Clemens put his name to it, I still refused. The next day Gorky was expelled from his hotel with the woman who was not his wife, but who, I am bound to say, did not look as if she were not, at least to me, who am, however, not versed in those aspects of human nature. I might have escaped unnoted, but Clemens' familiar head gave us away to the reporters waiting at the elevator's mouth for all who went to see Gorky. As it was, a hunt of interviewers ensued for us severally and jointly. I could remain aloof in my hotel apartment, returning answer to such guardians of the public right to know everything, that I had nothing to say of Gorky's domestic affairs for the public interest had now strayed far from the revolution, and centered entirely upon these. But with Clemens it was different. He lived in a house with a street door kept by a single butler, and he was constantly rung for. I forget how long the siege lasted, but long enough for us to have fun with it. There was the moment of the great Vesuvian eruption, and we figured ourselves in easy reach of a volcano, which was every now and then blowing a cone off 
as the telegraphic phrase was. The roof of the great market in Naples had just broken in under its load of ashes and cinders, and crashed hundreds of people. And we asked each other if we were not sorry we had not been there, where the pressure would have been far less terrific than it was with us in Fifth Avenue. The forbidden butler came up with a message that there were some gentlemen below who wanted to see Clemens. How many? he demanded. Five? the butler faltered. Reporters? the butler feigned uncertainty. What would you do? he asked me. I wouldn't see them, I said. And then Clemens went directly down to them. How or by what means he appeased their veracity, I cannot say, but I fancy it was by the confession of the exact truth, which was harmless enough. They went away joyfully, and he came back in radiant satisfaction with having seen them. Of course, he was right, and I wrong, and he was right as to the point at issue between Gorky and those who had helplessly treated him with such cruel ignominy. In America it is not the convention for men to live openly in hotels with women who are not their wives. Gorky had violated this convention, and he had to pay the penalty. And concerning the destruction of his efficiency as an emissary of the revolution, his blunder was worse than a crime. End of chapter 22 Read by Dennis Sayers in Modesto, California, for LibriVox. Winter 2007